How's everybody doing? Everybody hanging in there? Christmas uh, got you beating you down, lifting you up. A lot of people I've talked to, uh, my kids, are they're in the midst of like the end of school and they don't really, they're not really feeling it yet. And I said, I don't know, well, you know, what does it get you in the Christmas spirit? There's this kind of mystical thing. All the movies are about the Christmas spirit and all these things. And we're going to get into today the reality of the, the truth of what these songs are teaching us. So we're going to be looking at uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing today, a couple of verses from it, like Trev did last week. When he looked at O Come All You Faithful, we're not going to look at the whole song because that would take us two hours. So we're going to look at a couple of the verses, um, and then our, the Advent study kind of goes into things a little bit more in detail, and then of course we encourage you just to read the song and study it on your own. You can just probably Google a study on those things and you can find it. But that's what we're doing today, and the reality of it is that we are not uh, preaching the songs, right? So the, this song was, was written, as we'll talk about a little bit, by a guy named Charles Wesley, and uh, the song is not inspired, it is not infallible, it's a, it's a hymn or a Christmas carol. But we're not preaching the lyrics. We're actually going, the lyrics, most of it, especially in this song, are just direct quotations from the Bible. So we're going to the Bible to preach from the Bible. Why do we do that? Because the Bible is the living word of God. So we are a church who desires the deepest core of our being. First, to be Christocentric, that Christ is the center of all that we do. The second, to be bibliocentric. That means that the Word of God is at the center of all that we are and all that we believe as a church, that all of our life and all of our doctrine is centered on the anchor of the truth of the Word of God. Why? Because honestly, uh, Treb and I and the elders, we, we, it doesn't matter what I say. The power is from God and His Word. And so, and if you wonder why do we go to all this trouble? Why are we going back? Why do we always just preach the Bible? How come we're doing all of this? It's because the Word of God is the Word of God. It doesn't matter what I think or what you think. It matters what the truth of God's Word says. And if you want to know any more proof of that, just ask. Keegan walks in here. There are kids. He has to, like, defend the authority of the Bible in middle school because there are kids. Why would a kid care? Why would a 12-year-old care if the Bible is true or not? Because it convicts his heart. That's why, because it says things in there, and they're like, well, I don't want to have to face the reality of the things that the Bible says, but it's because the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It cuts to the division of soul and spirit, mind and, mind and body, and is able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That is why we teach the Bible. It is the most printed book ever in history by a long margin. It is the most hated book in all of history by a long margin. Why? Because what it says is true. Because the stories that it tells and the truth that it gives us transform our lives. I see a lot of you nodding because you have encountered Christ in his word and you've been transformed in that process. Not because the word, not because the, these pages are magical. It's not some kind of magical spell book we read from. It's the living word of God. It's been translated and now we're reading from an English version, but it has power because it's God's word. And that's why we preach from it. So we'll be in the Bible a lot today. So much that I had to put tabs in my Bible so I didn't spend all my time flipping everywhere. And we'll be jumping around a lot. So just hang with me if you're flipping or turning or whatever. It's going to be okay. If you're little, if you can't find it, just everything's going to be fine. It's all in there. You can pick one up and you'll, we'll all read it together. I'll read it, but follow along. And we're going to be jumping a bit through the Bible today looking at these passages. So with that in mind... Uh, we'll be looking at Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And as a quick aside before we get into it, uh, Treb touched on this last week and the Advent study touches on it a little bit. Uh, someone asked me, a couple people asked me, you know, uh, someone told me that angels don't sing. Okay, yes, okay, so the Bible does not have the phrase in it, the angels sing or angels sing. It doesn't say, doesn't say that. It doesn't say that there's a choir like directed by Jesus with, with angels singing in giant choir robes. Okay, this Bible doesn't say a lot of things. It says the angels say, it says the angels praise. There's this reference in Job to the morning stars singing during creation. And are those angels? I don't know. It doesn't say that angels can't sing either. So there's no verse that says, and the angels doth not sing. So, okay. So what we're not going to do is get into angel sing camps. If the angels sing and the angels don't sing, because that would be in direct contradiction to the Bible. So we're not going to divide ourselves over some tertiary topic of whether or not angels sing. If angels sing... I want to hear it, and it would be amazing, and I bet they sing in tune, and it would be beautiful. So, can angels sing out of tune? Someone's probably written a book about that. But anyway, 
some very, very boring, sad person. Um, so anyway, I don't know if they sing or not. The song says they sing. Two songs he said today saying they sing. It would not be a surprise to me if angels sing. Birds sing. We sing. I don't know. Here, in this song, when Charles Wesley wrote this song in 1739, he did not write Hark the Herald Angels Sing. He actually wrote a poem that was really somber and like really slow. And then years later, his friend George Whitfield took the verses that he wrote and adapted them a little bit. And uh, that's where we get the Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King. And uh, then they added the tune that we sing today, which is by a guy named, uh, they stole, a, I don't know if they stole it, but borrowed a tune from Fen Felix Mendelssohn, who wrote the famous Wedding March, the, the Here Comes the Bride song that so many of us have stood up to as the resplendent bride walks down to her groom. And in 1961, we kind of have the version that most of us sing today, which cuts out a couple of the verses. Go ahead and Google lost verses of a Hark the Herald Angels thing. The last two were like mind-blowingly, theologically glorious. So for your homework this week, but we're going to dive into two verses in this song, and before we do that, we're going to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, gosh, a lot. Um, I thank you for the lives of people like Charles Wesley and George Whitfield who were faithful to you, who loved you, who are in your presence right now, who preached the gospel, who loved the same Savior that we love, who wrote poems and songs and preached sermons and wrote books and and try to live lives that glorified you and were for the glory of God and the good of other people who understood the truth of the gospel and who preached it with all their lives. We thank you for um, the opportunity we get to worship here in freedom today. And as Treb often talks about, that we have so many brothers and sisters throughout the world who are meeting in, in secret, who are meeting uh, maybe not in fear, but in awareness of the reality that they are not free to do that. We give you thanks for that today. I pray you help us not to waste the freedom that we have to do that. We thank you for the word that you've given us. As we're going to look at today, it is the vast beauty of the gospel is all over this song, and it is all over the word. So help us, Lord Jesus, to understand what you're teaching us today. Give us a heart, O oh Lord, for communicating the gospel to lost people. Help Give us a heart, Lord Jesus, that moves to rescue, that moves to the broken, that moves toward the hurting, and that takes all the great joy and peace and delight of this season and runs out the front door with it, Lord. So would you help us understand, help us to learn, help us to live life differently because of the truth that you'll teach us today? Lord, I just want to take a moment to give everybody a, a chance just to settle down, to get their heart ready. If anybody's like me, Lord, their mind is whirring in a million different directions right now about what they've got to do this afternoon or what they didn't do last night or what they've got going on this week or this party and, oh, I forgot this and, oh, this, i got to get this for that person. And Lord, help us. Lord, help us to trust you, to settle our mind and to walk in the peace that you've won for us. So just take a minute and um, just pray and ask the Lord to settle your mind and your heart to receive his word today. And as we say often, just, just pray for whoever the Lord brings to mind, the person in front of you, your spouse, the person behind you, the person you just met. Pray for them that the Lord would help their heart and their mind settle down to allow the distractions to wait until after church and to just rest and receive and rejoice and worship and freedom today. Lord, we lift all of these things up to you. We need you. We desperately cling to your greatness and your glory. Thank you for giving us access to your majestic self and for inhabiting our life with us. We praise you for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So I believe the, the lyrics will get thrown up here, maybe. I don't know if that's uh, technical difficulties. I think I'm going to get up there. Woohoo! So, um, So there it goes. So this is part... Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the numerous king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. We have the next verse. There we go. Joyful all your nations rise. Yep, these are all these are great. We're going to sing these later. Skip on to the next one, though. Hark the herald angels sing, yea, Christ has heaven. Also great, beautiful. We're skipping past all of this. So um, 
Perfect. We're going we're gonna to nail Stop right here for a minute. Um, there's like 75 sermons just in this song. So we're going to just cram one into this verse and another one. So hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Life, light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. So first off, a hail is kind of a, an antiquated word. We don't use it very much. We kind of, it means to, to give a hearty approval to or to, to bring attention to something. We use it a little bit when we talk about hailing a cab. We're like, hey, hey, hail a cab, bring it, come, come here, pay attention to me. Uh, as a, a negative image of what hail might look like, um, the, the awful evil phrase of Heil Hitler that the Nazis gave in greeting to one another means hail Hitler in German. It means to give hearty approval to him and all that he was doing. Um, do not ever say that around me, I'll probably punch you. So, but the, he is saying uh, in this thing, hail who? to give hearty approval to, to give welcome to, to call attention to who? The heaven-born Prince of Peace and the Son of Righteousness. So let's first look at this idea of the fact that Jesus was heaven-born. What does that look like? And we're going to start today and we're going to end in 1 Corinthians 15. And then we're going to have a giant smorgasbord of verses we're going to run to. But we'll be in 1 Corinthians 15 to start. And then, Lord willing, we'll bring it all full circle back to here when we're done. So we'll be in 1 Corinthians 15, 12. And Paul, this is, uh, this is one of those kind of full mention chapters where uh, the resurrection of Jesus gets this massive uh, explanation here in 1 Corinthians 15. And Paul is kind of answering the question of what difference does it make that Jesus bodily rose from the grave? So in verse 12 he says, but it, if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, it's 1 Corinthians 15, 12, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we, then are, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. Not only did it not happen, but we've lied about it, he says. But uh, he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. So Paul's answer to the question, is resurrection from the dead an actual thing? Yes, it is. And he says, if it's not, in verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. If Christ is not raised from the dead, nothing matters. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. And if, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But in verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. This reality that... Uh, Christ has been raised from the dead means that something, he had to come from somewhere that wasn't where the dead people are. Does that make sense? So stay with me for a second while we look at, we're going to skip over a whole bunch of verses where we're going to now look at um, verses 45, and maybe we go to 42 to give a little bit of context. Okay, so he's talking about once this resurrection body, what is going to happen? Christ is raised in a body. What does that mean for us? So it will be in verse 42, with the resurrection of the dead, that the body that is sown is imperishable, is raised imperishable. Think about sowing a seed, you, bear, you dig a hole, stick it in the ground. You, when I die, you're going to dig a hole and stick me in the ground, right? So I don't mean to be sad about it, but this is what happens. So, um, or get burned up, or eaten by sharks, or whatever. So, but something's going to happen in my body. It's going to get sown in one way or another. Uh, if it is sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. All this contrast, it's sown in a natural body, raised in a spiritual body. Okay? He says, if there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual one. So it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. So Adam, Adam and Eve, he did not exist, and he became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. Just hang on, I know there's a lot of things in here, probably a lot of questions. Verse 47, the first man was from the dust of the earth. The second man from, from where? Heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. Okay, of the dust, like you, we were from the dust, we, we live a life, we get buried in the ground again, go back to dust, this kind of full circle thing, not the circle of life in that way, but sort of. The first man was the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven, as was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, and as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Okay, read that again. As was the earthly man, Adam, so were we of the earth. As is the man from heaven, Jesus, so also are those who are of heaven. 
And look at this. Just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, and like Adam, you and I have bodies like Adam and Eve, humans, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Believers will become like Jesus in an actual, physical, resurrected body, but something new is going to happen. The reason, we're going to come back to this in a little bit here. The reason that Jesus had to be heaven-born and not just earth-born, it's not just a second Adam, another guy that was born, that then lived a perfect life, and then died on the cross and rose from the grave. That isn't what happened with Jesus. Something distinct happened at the incarnation. Heaven entered into this broken realm. As Tripp talked about last week, it was a violent act of war. God was not up there just going, oh, I think what I'm going to do is we're just going to have a baby. Everybody loves a baby. You know what? That's what they did to the baby. That baby grew up into a man, and humanity nailed him to a cross. The violence of sin and brokenness was unleashed on Jesus, and he received all the violence that we deserve. If he had just been a guy, born of earth, like you, like me, with a sinful nature, he would not have been able to win for us this heavenly victory that we need in order to be the people God created us to be, which is people who bear the likeness of the man from heaven, Jesus. We needed someone outside of the system to enter our broken system who was not broken and redeem us out of it. On a very uh, lighter note, it's kind of like if you get financial advice, like get it from somebody who makes a lot of money. Or if you get uh, marital advice, get it from somebody who has a good marriage. Like uh, you don't ask a poor guy for, for financial advice unless he's going to tell you what not to do. And you don't want to ask uh, like a really, really unhealthy person, how do you get healthy? Or a person with a really bad marriage, how do I have a great marriage? Because I don't know. So if I want to be like my God in heaven, I need to have someone who is like my God in heaven to show me what he's like, and that is Jesus. As we'll see in just a little bit, he, he reveals to us who the Father is. So, the fact that he is heaven-born, just touch on that briefly, like I said, whole other sermon in there. The rather that Jesus comes from heaven, that's kind of where that's coming from. Next, you're going to look at this heaven-born prince of peace. So, Treb touched on this last week from Isaiah uh, chapter 9, that uh, Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and we've preached an entire sermon just on that title, so we'll just touch on it briefly, but what is a prince? Prince is the son of a king, and he works the entirety of his job under the authority of his father. This is what Jesus did in John 5, 19, when he says, everything that I see the father do, that is exactly what I do, and I do nothing but what the father does. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, was doing everything under the authority of the Father. He did exactly what the Father told him to do. And that's our model. His model for us is that we, he is a prince, a son of the king. And he submitted himself under the authority of his Father. And this he calls us to do the same thing. We're to submit ourselves under the authority of the king and to only live according to what he tells us to do. But he's not just a prince of war or a prince of whatever. He's a prince of peace. So uh, Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, uh, uh, we are now justified by faith and that we now have peace with God through Christ Jesus so that we now have justification. We're declared righteous before God by our faith in Christ Jesus and that we are now at peace with God. We've been declared righteous and we have peace with him through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us peace with God not only that, but he gives us peace in daily life. He gives you and I peace. He gives me the capacity to have peace no matter what's going on in my heart and in my life. He has a peace that can give us a peace that transcends all thought and understanding. He is in, him, in, in and of himself is the source of all of our peace. And he continues to give that to us. He is the prince of peace, heaven-born prince of peace. Okay. Son of righteousness. All right, this is going to take a second to lead up to. We're going to go first to Luke chapter 1 which is where uh, Zechariah is talking about, there's this kind of this song of Zechariah. In uh, Luke, we're going to be in uh, chapter 1, verse 76. Luke chapter 1 is like an incredibly long chapter of the Bible. If you've ever uh, doing a chapter by chapter thing, it's super long. But in verse 76, so Zechariah has heard about uh, that John is coming, and it's this miraculous birth, and he's talking about John the Baptist here. This is Luke 1, 76 through 79. 
And he, uh, he's filled by the Holy Spirit and prophesying in this song. says this, talking to John. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. He was the herald. He came before Jesus and said that the Messiah is coming. And in verse 77, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. So what was John doing? Giving them a knowledge of salvation. You can be saved. How? Through the forgiveness of their sins. Why? Because of the tender mercy of our God. By which, because of that mercy, the rising sun will come to us from heaven. So this is, this is uh, um, figurative language looking at the Messiah as the rising sun which will come from heaven. So two things in there. One, this rising sun, you may have a, if you have a footnote in your Bible, it's going to direct you back to uh, Malachi 4.2, which is where we're getting ready to go. But this idea of this rising sun coming to us from where? From heaven. The rising sun from earth doesn't help anybody. We need a rising sun from heaven to do what? To shine. On who? Those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. What do the people living in darkness and in the shadow of death need? They need light from heaven to shine on them, and then to do what? To guide our feet into the path of peace. So this, this song, the, these first verses right here, they're really talking about who is this Jesus, who is this child, who is this king that we're supposed to hail, who is he? The next section we're going to get into is going to talk about what he has done. If all you ever do in your life is understand who God is, who Christ is, and what he has done, like this is a good, this is a good thing to study for the rest of your days. This is who he is. The rising sun who's come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of what? Peace. You know that Jesus came to shine a path of peace for you to walk in? Are you walking in a path of peace? So let's turn to Malachi 4.2, this idea of the son of righteousness. Because you notice it doesn't say S-O-N of righteousness, right? It's S-U-N, like the big ball of fire in the sky, this big thing that heats up our planet. Why does it say that? Okay, for context, Malachi, last book of the Old Testament, um, he's a prophet who, has been, who has, comes to Israel. They've returned from the exile, the 70-year exile, and they're now back in the land. And as we all do in the Old Testament, uh, all the poor Israelites, just like I would do in their place, they're, they're not doing super well. They're messing things up. The, uh, the, um, the leadership, it's especially the spiritual leadership, the priesthood was not doing really well. And so Malachi is kind of this conversation back and forth between God. They ask him questions like, how have we wearied them? And, and uh, they say, well, what have we said against you? And God is responding back to him. This is wonderful dialogue. I encourage you to read it, dive in and read uh, Malachi. But it starts, let's say, in, um, oh, let's look at 3.16, Malachi 3.16, to give us some context. Because starting in chapter 3 through the end of the book is talking about a God's judgment and then this final day of judgment that is coming son of righteousness. So, then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. Isn't that amazing? Those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. I mean, that should blow your mind. And a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. It's amazing. Okay. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. I will spare them. Just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him, and you will see, again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. You see this contrasted often in the Bible and the Psalms and in other books where God is contrasting the righteous and the wicked. Like righteous people are supposed to look like God, and the wicked people don't look like God. And so when you start looking like the wicked people, you need to say, okay, wait a minute. I'm not living like who I'm supposed to be. And the Israelites weren't either. And God is saying, those who feared the Lord and honored his name I'm taking notice, and I will spare those who love me and honor my name. So, in verse 4, chapter 4, verse 1, it says this. Surely the day is coming. You've ever heard of the phrase, the day of the Lord? The minor prophets in particular talk a whole lot about this, this kind of this day, and it's this like eschatological day, this forward-looking day in the future, the day of the Lord that's coming. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left in them. You think about this idea of a whole bush being thrown into a furnace from root to the tip of the branch, torched. For 
But for you who revere my name or honor or fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. This is what Zechariah is referencing. And you will go out and leap like calves, released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked, and there will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. I mean, Merry Christmas, right? I mean, you don't have that one on a card. But I guess you could. if you, <laughs> You're like, all right, Merry Christmas. Uh, the Lord's coming, and he's going to burn you up if you don't believe in him, you know? So, I mean, I, okay, I don't like that part. Uh, nobody who loves people reads this stuff and is like, yay, the Lord's coming to burn up all the unrighteous. If that really gets you excited, you don't know who God is, okay? That is not God's heart. We're going to see, we're about to go to uh, a Second Peter, because he's going to talk about this exact same thing. It's not just an Old Testament concept. It's not like God is mean and grumpy and burns things in the Old Testament. and the New Testament, he's like, everybody come to me, and I'll hold you up like lambs. And No, God is coming. Look at this. Surely the day is coming. This is Malachi, 400 some odd years before the coming of Christ, right? So this is a long time ago. And what is coming on that day? Fire. The arrogant and every evildoer or every arrogant evildoer will be burned up. But for you who revere or fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise. Think about a sunrise coming. And there's this beautiful uh, uh, imagery of uh, coming on like the wings of the dawn, like the light flying over the surface of the earth. And what is it bringing with it? Healing. The son of righteousness will rise with what? Healing. What does God desire to bring to those in the dark? Healing. He desires that they be redeemed, which is what we're going to talk about in 2 Peter in just a second. And you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Why? This, it's this picture of, you ever seen a calf that's like been pinned up and it's like bounding up and down in a field? The imagery given here is that there's the ashes of the wicked are there and these calves are bounding up and down on top of them. That seems so grotesque unless you've been the victim of extreme injustice. And then you cry out for justice. Someone do something to make this right. Someone. We live in a world that is so unjust, that is so broken, and yet we, something in us cries out for us. If someone hurts a dog, people want to kill him because it's wrong to hurt an animal. And you see, think about how, what we do to other humans. There is such massive, immeasurable injustice in this world, and God will make it right. Two things will happen. Either all of the injustice that I have committed in my life will be put on Christ on the cross, and I will receive by grace through faith the salvation that he has won for me, and all the wrath that I am due goes on Christ, and I walk into righteousness and forgiveness because of him, or I will bear that judgment myself. There are only two options for humanity. You receive the grace and the life of Christ or you receive the wrath of God in its place. There is no third option. There is no other way out. So often when we talk to our kids, I'll be like, okay, you can do this or you can do that. And they're like, I choose neither. I'm like, that's a choice. Neither is a choice. There are only two choices. There is Christ and life. There is no Christ and death. The judgment of God is coming, and Peter talks about it in 2 Peter chapter 3. So, you flip way over to Peter, 2 Peter, right before Revelation, you skip past, right before 1 John. I would have liked to have met Peter, by the way. Maybe like old Peter. Young Peter, I think, was, uh, he was pretty salty. But, I like Peter. He's, he reminds me a lot of me, so just so faulted. So, <clears throat> Uh, 2 Peter, oh man, there's just so much in it. We're just going to start at 2 Peter 3, 1, and we're just going to read until I stop. So, Peter says, 2 Peter 3, Dear friends, this is now uh, my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Isn't that great? <laughs> stimulate you to wholesome thinking. It's such a... I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. So he's calling back to what has been written before in the Bible? First of all, understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing, I guess the scoffers scoff, and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation, but they deliberate. So this, here's this argument. People are saying, yeah, you say Jesus is coming back. Where is he? They were doing this in Peter's day. They're doing it today. 
That's why in Malachi, he says, surely a day is coming. And Peter is reminding them, this day is coming. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on, they say, as it has since the beginning of creation, but they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. This is in Genesis. It says, by the same word, same word that brought the world into creation, the same world that judged it with water, the present heavens and earth are reserved for what? Fire. Being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the, day, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness, but he is patient with you. Why? Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So I'm just going to stop right here and ask you directly, have you repented of your sin and turned to the Lord Jesus and been saved? The Lord is being patient with you, but that patience will not last forever. But, in verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming that they will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt with the heat. But in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. See, a man from heaven had to come. And that same man is bringing judgment on this broken, broken world. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. The words of Peter are like are hard words. They're not words where you just like, okay, great, yeah, everything's going to get burned up, okay. No, I mean, you mean burned up. Peter says, yeah, like it got flooded, it's going to get burned. Why? Because our promise for every believer, our promise is a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. This place is not our home. So when you feel out of place here, when you feel like you're being, you're like, Lord, I just feel, I don't not feel right here. That's good. That's you longing for the right place, the home of the righteous. So hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness, risen with healing in his being. Life and life to all he brings. I'm going to skip past that. And we're going to go to uh, the next verse here. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Oh my gosh, this guy can write, by the way. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. So mild he lays his glory by. So this reality, and uh, we're going to briefly talk in Philippians chapter 2. There's this kind of wonderful passage of, of this, uh, the, the humility that Christ demonstrates in his actions. So we're looking at who he was, or who he is, this uh, heaven-born prince of peace, the son of righteousness. And now, what did he do? Well, he, he laid his mild, he laid his glory by. This is uh, Philippians 2, say, verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, which is always, you can just stop right there in that sentence, and that's about enough for me today. It's not. Mine is almost not consistently ever my attitude is the same as Jesus. All I've got to do is read the Gospels and think, I'm not like that. But make me like that, Lord. So, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So, the idea that Jesus was in every way, shape, or form, whole and inseparably, his nature and essence, he is God. But he did not consider equality with God or the prerogatives that he deserved by deity to be something that he would even hold on to. So, Jesus, in his very self, in his very being, is God. And as God, deserves all glory, all praise. He is omni-everything. And he has every prerogative, every right to make everybody worship him, to require everybody to bow down to him. But what does he do? But he made himself nothing or emptied himself 
taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. The reality that God in Christ was a baby who needed his diaper changed. You think about the immeasurable, glorious majesty of God on high. The glory that nobody can even stand in front of. Every time you see somebody before God, they're terrified and they think they're, they either almost die or they fall on their face and they think they're going to die. The only way they don't die is because God does something. He sends an angel to Isaiah uh, who, who holds a, a, burns his lips with a, uh, burns away the sin from his lips. He does something so that we can stand in the glory of his presence. And yet Jesus laid that down. He laid aside all the prerogatives that he deserved in his deity. He did not stop being God. He veiled this deity in, human, in his humanity. And we're going to look at that, what that looks like in just a second in Matthew. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Christ, in becoming uh, the incarnate son of God, was able to die on a cross for our sins. By the way, if you ever get confused about the Trinity or the Incarnation, welcome to the club. I've got way more. The more I think about it, I don't know that I will ever in all of eternity be able to comprehend the great mystery of the Incarnation or the great mystery of the Trinity, and so should it be. Why could my mind, why do I think that God should be able to should do something so magnificently glorious that my little brain can figure it out? It makes sense that I can't, that the more I peer into it, the more questions I have, and the more questions that we have, this idea that my reason needs to kneel and worship outside of that throne room, whatever's going on in there that I can't comprehend. So if you jump to Matthew chapter 17, this is the uh, transfiguration. You don't have to jump there, of course. There's no one's going to make you take notes or anything. But Matthew chapter 17, a little look at what this glory, this veiled glory was. Matthew 17 um, Jesus has this famous encounter, of course, with, with Peter. And uh, six days later, he takes with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of Je- uh, James, and John, the brother of James, and leads them up to a high mountain by themselves. And there in verse 2, he was transfigured before them. The verb, by the way, for transfigured is the same verb that Paul uses when he says, I do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, this transfigured. He was transfigured before them. And this is who Jesus really is. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. So Jesus looks like a star standing there in front of them. And there he was with Moses and Elijah just talking with Jesus. Moses has been dead for 1,500 years. And he's standing there with Elijah talking to Jesus. And of course the disciples, their their minds are blown. Because Jesus, this guy that they've seen, and they're like, hey, catch some fish and do these things. And all of a sudden, they see him for the glory that he really is, transfigured before their eyes. And his glory shines like the sun. Have you ever looked in the sun for very long without sunglasses, those little things? It hurts. It'll burn your retinas out. You can't even look at it. And Jesus is standing there, and for just a brief moment, his glory shines like the sun, and a cloud envelops him, and a voice from heaven comes and says, this is my son, whom I love, and with him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. The disciples heard this. They fell down terrified, and Jesus came down and touched them and said, get up. Do not be afraid. It's amazing. And when, he looked at, when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. They could not stand to be in Jesus' glory. Could not stand it mild he lay his glory by. Born that men no more may die. Okay, so that's a crazy statement. We're going to look at John 11, which is, uh, John is full of crazy statements, and this is one of my favorite ones. This is uh, Jesus is sitting there, and he's talking to Martha, and their brother Lazarus is dead. This is John 11, 25 and 26. Born that men no more may die. Hold on, like full stop. Wait a minute. Hold on. Next time someone asks you or you're talking to somebody about Jesus, by the way, always redirect the conversations back to Jesus. Don't get, don't get all these rabbit trails and things. Just go back to Jesus. Make them talk about Jesus. Bring them back to Jesus. 
Say, who is Jesus? What did he do? What does the Bible say about him? Who is he? Because people will say that Jesus was a great moral teacher or that he was the founder of the world's greatest religion or whatever. Listen to this. Jesus says to Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection of the last day. And Jesus looks at her and says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Those are crazy words. If someone ever comes up to you and says that, just run the other way. Unless they then right after that raise somebody from the dead, I guess. But that's what Jesus is going to do, of course. He says this, and then he tells Lazarus, who's been dead for four days and is stinky, hey, Lazarus, wake up. Come on. Come out of the tomb. Only Jesus, who can raise someone from the dead with his words, can say to someone, I am the resurrection and the life. No one else can say that. They can say it, but they're crazy. He who believes in me will live even though he dies? Who can say that? And whoever lives and believes in me will never die? Can you believe he says these things? This is an impossible thing. Who here has lost someone that they love to death? If that person believed in Jesus, guess what? They will live even if they die. Those are powerful words. And his question to Martha is, do you believe this? And it is the same question to you and the same question to me today. Do you believe that if you believe in the name of Jesus and who he is and what he did, that you will live even if you die? Because that is what the Bible says. Charles Wesley put it in a song, but he got that song straight from the word of God. Jesus was born that man no more may die. It's why we have an instrument of death and torture up here covered in flowers. Because it's been robbed of its power. And so we can put flowers around it and celebrate it. Why? Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. It says, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. We're going to jump and end back in 1 Corinthians 15. In this fun and crazy chapter, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15, 50. This is Paul kind of bringing a close to this argument, this discussion he's having. He says, I declare to you, 1 Corinthians 15, 50, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. We're going to have a lot of questions here. I'm not going to answer all of them. It's okay. Nor does the imperishable inherit the imperishable. Why? Because there's this, there's this distinction between the things of the earth and things of heaven. He's made this contrast all throughout this chapter, right? Something is wrong in us that has to get fixed for us to go to this heavenly place, right? Something is broken in me that has to happen. Any, any believer who's walked for any amount of time knows there's something in me, in my flesh, that's got to die for me to be able to stand God's glory. Listen, he says in verse 51, and I'll tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep or die, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. You and I can die. Something has to change for that not to happen anymore. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? That is not yet fully true. If you've ever lost someone to death, you still feel the sting of death. Yes? But at the resurrection, the sting of death will forever be gone. And we can look at death and say, where's your victory now? You who took my dad, you who took my sister, you who took my child. Where's your victory now, death? Huh? Where is it? It's gone because it was conquered by Jesus when he rose from the dead. The sting of death is sin in verse 56. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He was born to raise the sons of earth. 
He wasn't just born to make us get along or to help us build buildings or so we could do nice things on earth. He was born because we were dead in our sins and he wants us to raise us to eternal life and live on a new heaven and a new earth with him. That's why Jesus was born. Therefore, in verse 58, my dear brothers, how do we respond to that? You stand firm. Why? Because nothing can stand against us. What's the worst thing that can happen to me? Or any of us, someone can kill us, maybe in a very slow and horrible and excruciating way. And then guess what? I go to Jesus, Jesus wins, I get raised from the dead, I'm in glory forever with him. Stand firm and let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Do not grow weary in the work that you do for the Lord, ever. Okay, we're going to draw this whole thing to a close. And when we... As we did last week, we're going to sing the song, okay? So as you sing these songs, they are so rich with theology and with the truth that comes from God's word. This song is played in every mall and on every radio and in almost every movie you see during Christmas. It's like this wonderful uh, subterfuge that goes through our culture every single Christmas. They literally play the gospel in the mall. Use it. When you're in Dillard's checking out or you're somewhere and you're like, hey, there's uh, this song. It said, born that, you know that Jesus was born that you could know. More. What's the worst they're going to do? Laugh at you? Tell you you're an idiot? I don't care. Do it anyway. I dare you. I dare you to tell one person this Christmas that this song is about the gospel and give someone the gospel. I dare you. I triple dog dare you. Do it. Stick your tongue to the pole. There you go. By the way, if you ever do that, pour some hot water. It'll be, be fine. So tell someone the gospel. This is what Christmas is about. It is not just that Jesus came. It is that he came and he was born so that men no more may die. How is someone going to know that if, they don't, if you don't tell them? If you know someone who doesn't know the gospel, it's your job to tell them. Do you get that? It's God's job to do the saving. It's our job to tell them the gospel. So if you know someone who doesn't know it, be bold. Just tell it. Worst thing you're going to do is like overcharge you for a sweater. I mean, I don't know. So, if that's the worst persecution you face, like, arm in arm, let's, let's wade into that fire. So, because the fire of God's judgment is coming, and I don't know when, but it's coming someday. And for all of those who have not believed on the name of the Lord Jesus, they're going to get burned up in that. And I don't know what all that means. You know, there's books about what all those things mean, but it's not good. I want them to be walking with us Singing the song, Where O Death Is Your Victory, and Where O Death Is Your Sing, is Your Sting. Give the gospel this Christmas and stand firm in the faith that you've been given and that you live in. Why? Because you have the heaven-born Prince of Peace indwelling you. You have the Son of Righteousness inside of your heart. So shine. Get out of your own way and just let the Lord shine his life through you. Walk in surrendered submission to him this Christmas. Tell people the gospel. And when you sing these songs for crying out loud, turn on your brain. Think about it. Think about these words. Meditate on these songs and spend time in the word as you go throughout this Advent season. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for just the great wonder of who you are. We're overwhelmed by... Just a couple verses in a song, Lord, as we meditate on the infinite glory of who you are, the forever imperishable work that you accomplished in your death and in your resurrection, that you came to save us, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Lord, if anyone here is hearing my voice right now that has never trusted in Jesus, Lord, did you weigh it on their heart, draw them to you. And I implore you, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, don't walk out of these doors until you do. We have a response song. Give you a moment. Make your peace with God through Christ Jesus that you can now have righteousness in him through faith and be at peace with God. Lord Jesus, we lift this time up to you. Help us to respond in spirit and in truth to you. In your risen name we pray. Amen.
Let's all stand as we sing these truths. Let them take root in your heart. Rest in them this season. As you go and you shop and you go and you do stuff, you take the light of the gospel of Christ with you. So tell someone about it for crying out loud. If you're worried about it, call me and I'll pump you up. And just go. Make a fool of yourself and tell someone about Jesus and go in peace. Oh, and take an Advent study because I don't want to throw them all away next week. So.